Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy, with special guests Panny Bogdanos and Andrew Dalgano. Welcome everyone to our journey into the final two 10cc albums. We're looking at Meanwhile in 92 and Mirror Mirror in 95 and I'm once again joined by the beautiful and the very talented Paul McNulty in Liverpool, <laughs> the equally beautiful and talented Panny Bogdanos in California and Andrew Dalgano in Aberdeen. Hello gents. <laughs> nice. Hi Sean, hi Paul, hi Panny. Yeah, hey guys, how are you? Can I say what a relief it is to have uh, the four of us in the same e-room at the same time? I think it'll be great. I hope we don't step on each other too much. But that's okay. Well, at least uh, at least it'll be better than me trying to edit together that Frankenstein's monster last time. Look at her face, it's a picture. She's a woman enough. I'm going to start this conversation, chaps, by batting the ball into your court to start off with if you could give us a little bit of context to how meanwhile came into being i'm going to drop liam's book on the table again because <laughs> you could all hear that is his magnificent book oh yes but not only not only heavy in uh, kilograms uh, or pounds and ounces but but heavy in the best sense of the word mm. word and, and and deep and and, it, and i've learned a lot about meanwhile over the past week uh, which which I hope will really stand us in good stead for this podcast. Agreed. Briefly, um, 10CC were inactive, as, as we all know, in, in the mid to late 80s. Um, and then the compilation Changing Faces was released in August 1987 and was a big success. Yeah. It, it was a big seller in the UK. Number four, uh, I think, and, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and not just, you know, it, it hung around in the charts for a long time. Um, and that really was the catalyst for, for getting the band back together. There were there were attempts to get all four of the guys together, but it was particularly bad timing for Kevin Lowell because they were splitting up, mm. and so collectively and individually weren't really interested. Whilst it was particularly good timing for Graham, uh, particularly because uh, Wax was just about to be, you know, put to bed as it were mm. he and Andrew Gold had enjoyed the experience but they, they they were kind of flogging a dead horse at one point and they they wanted to continue writing together um, and they wanted to, to draw a line under under the band yeah. itself and so all those things kind of came together, and with Kevin Lowell out of the picture, Eric and Graham did get together and started writing songs and together. And one of the things that was really interesting in, in Liam's book, and he's drawing off some really good archive material at the time, was was how optimistic uh, the, the early songwriting sessions were, how much they seemed to be thoroughly enjoying working together again. I, that's uh, what really struck me. Uh, yeah. Possibly more than anything else in the book so far, Paul, is that the picture of two people who were relishing being back together in the same room and mm-hmm. right, and coming up with 22 songs. I, I was yeah. I was astounded by how happy they sounded at the start of the project. Don't open your heart. 
and it's uh, we'll talk about the way it panned out. And I don't think anybody would consider the album a huge success, even if they think it's an artistically artistic success. It, it certainly wasn't a commercial success. No. Um, uh, not not least uh, shown by the fact that the record company dropped them after you know one album where they were looking at a five album deal initially yeah um but yeah that's that, that's really really sad uh, in that it started out great and it gradually deteriorated from that point um so 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 just to you know we've set the scene we're in 1990 at this point and eric and graham are back to their original modus operandi uh uh, Graham on guitar, Eric on keyboard, writing in, in the usual way, we think, and coming up with all these songs. Mm. Now, whether or not the merit, we'll, we'll discuss the merits of these songs, but the important thing initially is that they thought the songs were very strong. Yeah. I have a hard time believing that there was any much more than money that was motivation factor in this um, okay. whether Graham and uh, Eric really uh, were that interested in, in revitalizing uh, the career and you know working on the first of you know what was essentially a five album deal with Polidor mm. it, it really seems that you know when I look back at these songs and it, it still seems to be kind of more of Eric's ego trip than anything else well, it, it's funny that, Panny, and as we come to talk about the rest of the tracks, I think that's certainly something that I'm going to be talking about. And, and it harks back to the, the conversation, Andrew, that we had about Windows in the Jungle, where at least two of us were saying, oh, this sounds like an Eric tune and this sounds like Eric's project. And you were adamant, weren't you, that, the two of, that it sounded like the two of them were sitting down and co-writing the songs. Now... Liam's book has made me reassess this album and I have to say I've come out the other side with a much wider smile on my face than I did before, put it that way and knowing that, that it, it's made up of songs that they did actually collaborate on, I'm now reassessing Windows in the Jungle and thinking that yes, they probably did co-write a lot of that. I feel the same as you, Panny, that it, yes, it does feel more Eric-y, but Eric. I wonder yeah, I wonder now if that's because Eric was pushed more to the, the forefront as the lead singer, and maybe that's giving us a false impression of who's in control of the song. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I've always been under the impression, I haven't read you know, the, you know, the book um, that's just out, I just ordered it, but... Uh, yeah, I think Eric wanted to always, you know, I was under the impression that Eric always wanted to be the lead singer of the band and he wanted it to be his band. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that that seems to be an undertone of things that I've read you know, about Tennessee over the years and also about this period of the band and even uh, about the period in the early 80s, you know, up to Windows in the Jungle. Uh, even with the touring, Eric was doing most of the lead vocals. Yeah. And it's a shame on this album, uh, you barely hear Graham on the album at all. You only hear him on the one B-side, mm. uh, you know, singing the lead vocal. But, yes. um, but, but you know, let's, let's continue.
Yes, interesting points there. You're absolutely right. Like Windows in the Jungle, Graham's voice is very much much more of a backing singer, isn't it? Or a kind of a co-lead singer on some. Yes, no, I agree with you. And I think um, it's it's nice when Graham can be heard, you know, a couple of, you know, even if it's just a couple of tracks where he's got the lead vocal, I think that, that augments rather than detracts from 10cc. So I was disappointed he didn't get at least one lead vocal. And in fact, I can I can barely hear him at all on this album. Well, I think he does an interesting... Is it counterpart vocal? Is that the term yes, you used uh, previously on, yeah, on one it, of the songs? Yeah, he does a couple of tunes with a counterpoint vocal, doesn't he? Yes. But apart from that, and of course, we're also, you know, hearing the other guys as well. So there's even less less room for his voice to be heard, which is a shame. But it's it's not as big a shame as the fact he didn't play bass on the album, which I find <laughs> yeah. just absolutely astonishing. And yeah, what was going on there? And Eric hardly plays any guitar. Yeah, and yeah. Graham plays the guitar. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, weird. I, I I do not understand that. There, there do seem to be. And maybe I'm I'm kind of imagining too much behind the scenes, but there do seem to be some very odd decisions made by Gary Katz, don't there? They really do. And uh, yeah. and and clearly that's where the unhappiness started, wasn't it, Paul? It, it seems to be a very happy songwriting process, um, but a very unhappy recording. Yes, I, I believe Gary Katz was was a bad choice. obviously done fantastic work with Steely Dan yeah. and that's one of the reasons they, they went to him um, because Eric particularly was an enormous or is an enormous fan of Steely Dan another reason and again Liam brings this out in the book is that they went to Katz was a purely practical one in that he owned his own studio um, and with Strawberry out of the picture it, you know logistically it was easier for them to, to work like that um yeah, they may have been better going with an English producer mm. uh, recording in England with their own guys. There's even quotes in the book explaining this that, that Graham muses it would have been better. I think it's Graham saying it would have been better having Paul Burgess. In fact, just the, just the three of them again as, as the nucleus. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, but for whatever reason, they they didn't go that way. And and as was as as we have said, they shuffle everything right around. I mean, Graham is the guitarist on this album but well, he the, doesn't, the doesn't, rhythm he doesn't play the, any solos he plays essentially all the you know does all the, the spade work if you like he yes. plays all the rhythm parts um eric plays the keyboard obviously he's a great keyboardist but if you're not hearing a lot of eric's guitar and obviously you do hear some mm. um and you've got jeff Picaro, who is an incredible drummer and i believe this is one of the last projects he he, he did before his untimely death that's right he, he died that year didn't he in 1992. 92. Yeah. yeah. However, I'm afraid 10CC have got a, a very bad track record of using two stellar drummers, Steve Gadd and Jeff Picaro, and, and in my ears, making them sound really pedestrian. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, once again, 
uh, these musicians aren't really being asked to do much, are they? Well, what I don't know why. In terms um, of drums and bass, certainly it seems very pedestrian. Yeah, who's who's the bass player on this? Freddie Washington. Who's obviously another great player, but it just doesn't gel at all. And then adding to the mix the malaise of just being in 90 and 1991 where everything sounds long. Everything's got an extended intro and outro. Mm. Everything creeps up to four or five minutes. Or six minutes in, in some cases. Yeah, and that that's all... Uh, that's completely opposed to really what you want out of a 10cc um, approach, I think, where generally speaking you want bish, bash, bosh, in and out. <laughs> yes. Um, they seem to work best... Uh, in in that in in that sphere and uh yeah it it it's it, it's a it's a rather dated sounding album yeah uh, but but it, yeah it's it is a quite an 80s sounding album isn't it it's it's almost like a I'm now reassessing Winners in the Jungle, as you can probably tell tonight, and thinking, you know, come back, mm. all is forgiven. But I think, <laughs> I think to some extent that they're quite similar in that in my stomach, they're both attempts to really appeal to the American market. And here, they couldn't be more obvious, could they? They're recording in America, they've got Gary Katz, they've got all these fantastic American session musicians. They are desperate to finally break it in America, which seems to have been the band's obsession right from the early days. But for me, it's a very painful irony here. It's a very, very painfully deliberate American-style album. Nothing wrong with that, but I think almost a cynically American album. But it wasn't even blooming released in America. And that, that absolute, that's a tragedy, isn't it, Banny? Well, you know, everything points to, you know, let's send you to America, an American producer, you know, we'll make this album for the American market, and then it doesn't come out, in, you know, in the American market. Yeah. It's interesting. it's interesting that Gary Katz was chosen. I mean, I seem to think, even from the beginning, that he didn't really understand the band, understand the members of the band and the, the relationships in the band. Mm. Um, you know, he, you know, just seemed to kind of want to do it his way, you know, brought in his own players, which... I think was again another negative um you know th there wasn't really a lot of uh room from what i understand uh, for discussion of you know some of the things that were being done and i mean as as much as i'm sure gary's uh interests or you know he had his best you know uh, the best interests of the band at heart boy i i think in terms of 10cc and in terms of what we know about the band and their legacy I mean, he missed it by a mile, you know, mm. not not even close. Um, you know, he, he, you know, the album is slick and you know a bit uh, of the times, if you like. But you're right about some of the songs just going on and on. I mean, uh, what's the last tune on the album? The McCartney track, you know, "Don't Break the Promises." Yes. My God, I mean, it's it, what is it? Six minutes and forty seconds, I think. 
Oh, it um, feels longer than that to me. Yeah. But, yeah, it, uh, no, I, I take your point. I'm, I'm sorry for, for the joke, but, yeah, I, I'm with you. The first track okay. as well has got, you know, how many guitar solos? And the intro it seems to be a, a, an entire instrumental version of the whole track. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right about the malaise, Paul. Listening back now, it just sounds so dated and slow and stodgy, doesn't it? Well, I really like a lot of the album. I think it's a very good album. I certainly don't find it dated. I fully, fully agree that um, they should have had um, Goldman on bass and Stuart mm. on guitar and brought, brought the Mark II band back as far as possible if Gottlieb yeah. and Queen weren't going to be making, weren't going to be properly involved. But I think there's some there's some great songs here all the same. And it really is such a shame that, uh, that things did go so wrong in the studio. I don't know about the point about the five-year deal. I think that's always record company ways of protecting themselves it's just it's just a tool to allow the record company to to keep the band attached to them if yes. if they have a very successful album so i'm not sure that there would have really been a vision of a of, of five albums coming out but i think this was a an album i think they can be very proud of and it's a shame that they're they're not very proud of it because there's some great songs on it mm. they were very disappointed because eric says even now doesn't he that he really stands by the tracks uh, you know, they, they obviously really like the songs, and I think there are some good songs on it. It's purely a disconnect, isn't it, between two songwriters who we, we really admire for their honesty and their heart, the charm, the, you know, the warmth and humour, and they, they've been given a, a whole production method that has sucked all, for me, sucked all of the life out of it and left it with no warmth, it's sterile, it's polished, yes, it's adult, AOR, another attempt to be Steely Dan, and and, and I wish they'd just um, gone with their heart and been 10cc, but yeah. try and reinvent yourself, lads, like you, like you were going to do with, with Windows in the Jungle, it was, a, it was a, a really encouraging movement towards a kind of adult album concept, which was in retrospect, you know, pretty good. But this, um, I don't know, the, the knobs are all wrong. The other thing, uh, Sean, is, um, you know, the marketing budget. And apparently they oh. spent £750,000. Yeah making the album and we're left with nothing to promote it now that's yet another example of record company incompetence we've talked yeah. about record company incompetence and allowing them to release look here when there wasn't enough good songs in it <laughs> record company incompetence when they messed up too much with the u.s release of 10 out of 10 etc but i mean this is incredible you know they could have they could have spent a quarter of that summer made a good a good album with with core members of the band in, in yes. the UK and had plenty of money to promote it. Exactly. They could have done it for a tenth of the price, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's madness. Know, I, I was, go, go on, sorry. sorry. I was so, so desperately excited when I opened up my Q magazine and somewhere tucked in the middle of it, probably in 1991, was a five-sentence article saying this album that did reconvened and they were coming back i almost i almost hit the moon and landed on the other side i yeah. was so excited and then gradually things kind of took away my excitement and you know on the marketing front they got to give a they got to include a, a track on a, a, on a on a cd that q gave away you know with 
other up and coming okay. or older bands. Which, which and they should they choose? probably the worst track on the album and they've got to be prepared to give away a really good song to draw people back in yeah so i think it's another example of really poor marketing yeah I, i'm with you I, I i quite like shine a light in the dark actually but we'll, we'll come on to that won't we in a bit um I, i'm dying to say something positive about the record now chaps if that's okay unless anyone's no. got anything burning i i well, actually do like on balance i do like woman in love um i think We've already mentioned that it's way too long. The single version, I think, is is much, much tighter and, and does the job really effectively. Misses out the, the gorgeous jazzy harmony, the vocal harmony at the start. But I think there are so many good bits in this song, and actually uh, in some of the other tracks as well. Even though some of the songs are a little bit on the stodgy side, they, some of the verses are a bit dreary, there's there's lots of lovely Eric and Graham touches. <coughs> little flourishes, little chord changes, little bits of harmony, harmony and melody, which kind of reassure you that all is well. And, and I think this, this track is, is a case in point. It's easily my favourite on the album, um, if only because there are so many lovely bits in it. And I, and I feel exactly the same way about 24 hours on Windows in the Jungle. There are bits of that that bore me, but there are so many lovely bits. And, um, and I wish more of the album had been like this. Am I talking rubbish? Well, I think if, if you're great songwriters, you've got to be able to make those bits cohere into a great song. And, um, yeah, there are a few nice bits if we're talking about uh, Woman in Love. But it's it's a pretty dreary song. I find I have to work at it and work at it before mm. I, you know, can remember what's going on. And, you know, I don't want to have to work at a 10TC song, you know, because the great ones, you don't they don't feel like work. They feel like... They feel like oral sunshine, and and, and this this this, this couldn't right. be this is this couldn't be further from the Dean and I. It's a bit of an unfair comparison, maybe, mm. but you know it. It's a long it's a long way down rock and roll from the Dean and I to Woman in Love. And the, maybe a, maybe the accountant and I. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's a pedestrian track. It's 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 not one of my faves. Let's just leave that there for if we're talking track one. And let me continue. Um, in in the discussion of the uh, 1980s albums, I mentioned that. You know, Eric seems to be writing from a point of view of just being critical of things going on around him. And when you look at Woman in Love, I mean, Sean, like you, 
you know, the LP version with the long intro and the, you know, little section, you know, I don't know what in the way of the world, you know. That's lovely, kind, that, I think. Kind of, kind of foreshadows, like, wow, this might be a great mm. thing. And, you know, then the drum kind of kicks in and, you know, the rhythm, which kind of falls flat. Um, but, but Eric, I mean, if you really look at the lyrics of the song, Eric, the, the, the song doesn't make sense. You know, he's either observing a woman who's, you know, the dish of the day of somebody else, and mm. he's kind of you know, stalking her. And then he goes on and on about, you know, you you give a, a bit of your life, you know, to spend a night in the sheets with her at the end. And then he says at the very end, you know, this one is mine. So you don't know if he's, you know, managed to, you know, stalk her and, and, and get her. You know, mm. uh, it really doesn't make sense when you really look at the lyrics. And I find the song to be a bit sexist. It's crucial at the end. I could be wrong here. I want somebody to, to back me up or, or, or refute what I'm saying. But doesn't he say you're too late? As if no, you know that that one that ship has sailed, and he, he's just admiring this woman from a distance. She's in love, but we're in love with somebody else. I, I, that's that's the okay. way. I hear, that's why I hear the the, the lyric resolving. Anybody right. chip? I, I can't chip in on this one for two reasons, chaps, and I'm not being facetious here. One is that the vocals are mixed so quiet that the the the, the lyrics just don't kind of appear uh, in your mind. They don't come forward. It's almost like they're hiding away. And also, the, I've got the CD, and the, mm-hmm. the, the type is so small, yeah. uh, grey on black. There's no way that someone uh, above the age of 12 can read those lyrics <laughs> i'm sorry i mean i've got my you know, i've got I, I had to literally i had to wear two pairs of glasses just so i could make out the, the credits for who played on them but lyrically i've not engaged with this album at all for for, for the reasons i've just said and i, and I yeah. swear i'm not making that up for me i i just kind of take it at, at face value which is uh, she's a woman in love with me but I, i'm now thinking a different way from the way you've talked about it panny and paul um, yeah, that he's I- observing a woman who's never going to be with him because she's in love with someone else. That's what I read it to be. Um, I mean, it maybe it doesn't matter that much because it's not a, right. it's not a, it's not a major work. But um, I just wanted to to defend Eric, but only because the way I hear it, he isn't actually. Uh, he's he's merely observing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's never it's never clear if he's just observing or if the woman is in love with him. It's, okay. it's, that, that's the part where I have a problem with it because you know if he's telling somebody you know this kind of beauty comes from within, you know shouldn't be allowed. Uh, yet it's really a sin. You sell your soul for a night in her bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you be saying that to somebody if you were in love with a woman? You know it. it and then he goes on to say, uh, "You're far too late, boy. I've already said, you know, um, you know." That's it. That's, that's the line where he's saying, yeah. "You're far too late." But I think he's talking about himself. But you know, uh, yeah, and, and it mm. could be he's talking about himself. And that's and that again, it's not clear. And that is where the problem seems to kind of, at least for me, lose some of his, some of the, 
meaning. You're not really sure what's going on here. Sure. Okay. But to, to kind of take a, a, a more positive spin on the song before we move on to other tunes, chaps, what I like about this song the most and what I actually like about the album as a whole is that you've, you can hear Eric and Graham harmonising together. Paul, you were saying this, weren't you, a few albums ago, and uh, you're saying that in the 80s it was becoming a rarer and rarer thing, almost as if they were avoiding that situation of being around the mic together at the same time. Um, it was that, That's a bit of a lost opportunity. Yeah, just to, to move off meanwhile, just briefly, there's not actually, uh, and, and with three people who can correct me, which is handy, but there's not a lot of two-part harmony between Eric and Graham anywhere from 1976 out to the end. Yeah. I don't think. No, yeah, that, you're that, right. That's why the chorus of Memories, which is a song I love anyway, mm. really gets to me. because They're two great singers. They're two great harmony singers. I'm just amazed that um, you heard it when the f configuration was the four of them, you know, in twos and threes and fours, they'd harmonise a lot. But yeah. you don't hear... You hear lots of... Uh, counterpoint vocals background oohs and ahs but you don't hear a lot of proper harmony lines between the two of no. them and, and that, that's strange that it is but on this album you hear it a lot uh, on on woman right. woman in love you've got kind of more of a block harmony thing but you can really hear their distinctive voices together in that block of harmonies but the right. next the next song next song wonderland is one of those songs that has fantastic graham counterpoints against eric's kind of main chorus melody and and that is a lovely novelty actually uh, however bland some of the songs are they're usually rescued by something they're doing together as a duo anybody agree <coughs> with that wonderland i think is a case in point uh, i think the chorus is is actually dare i say it delicious If I could maybe chip in here, <laughs> I'm just going to use my, add my usual caveat that, of course, we're assuming <laughs> it's Eric that's written all the lyrics, which might not be true. Let's talk about Lowell's backing vocals. You know, he was he was backing vocals on five of these tracks. Mm. I don't know what he sounds like as a singer in this you know this generation of songs. Anyway, the last time we heard him sing properly was on Sandwiches of You, I think. Yeah, so yeah I, I, I hear it. it. I can't. Graham, that's predominantly kind of backing vocals on this one. I thought it was supposed to be Lol. Yeah. Can anybody hear Lol on yeah. this album? Because Th there's one song, <laughs> one song where I think Lol um, at the end of Welcome to Paradise, I think right. you hear Lol's voice in the kind of high mid, not the top one, I don't think, but the high hmm. mid. We'll play a little clip of that, but that's the only point on the album where I'm thinking, I think that's probably Lol. You can hear a Kevin BV. You can right. you can clearly hear Kevin's very distinctive vibrato, but Lol has been mixed out, as far as I can hear. I just wondered whether it was Lol singing the bit "It's a Wonderland" and you've got a smile from everyone. But you think that's Graham, do you? I th I do think it's Graham, but Graham's voice has been really really processed. 
Uh, it's been double tracked and I think probably put through some effects process, you know, maybe exciters and chorus and EQ and all, all that American jazz. No offence, Panny. Uh, and, no, <laughs> and he ends up I... not sounding much like Graham, but I think it is him. I kind of disagree. I, I always hear, I've always heard Lowell okay. in that. It, you know, but it is hard to, to tell. I mean, I think it's more in Lowell's range. And I yeah. think Grant has a, you know, a lower toned voice. And yeah, he could sing those higher parts, no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, I, I think that that is one of the highlights of the song, that, you know, part, you know. Oh, I really um, like it. I really like it. I'm going to re-listen to it with, with Lowell in mind. Yeah, I, I really, I've always heard Lowell singing that part, and I, and I think it's one of the highlights of the album and one of the highlights of that song. And, and I really love the melody of Wonderland, especially the part where Eric uh, sings the lines, uh, something about the power of communication, sitting in the palm of my hand, everyone is, everyone at my command. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the melody is just... It's like one of those little snippets of, of a song that gets caught on my head for days, mm. and, you know, and it, it almost makes you crazy. You know, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you're hearing that melody. Um, yeah, I agree. This has been a bit of an earworm for me, actually, the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I think this is probably one of the best tracks on the album, and yeah. it, uh, I, I really think that uh, you know, you know, going back and listening to it, uh, to, you know, I hadn't really listened to it meanwhile, probably a few years now, and just exploring it again the last few weeks. This is the one album, I, I, uh, one song I keep going back to. I, I just find that this one is worthy of another listen again and again. Yeah, um, I agree. I, it's it's a very yeah. under, understated little tune, isn't it, Panny? It's very, yeah. very subtle. It kind of creeps up on you. Yeah, one one thing that I always get out of the song, you know, Eric seems to be summing up the whole project, you know, this whole project of doing this album. This, You know, uh, he says something about, uh, you know, this is the time of life and we should be enjoy these, enjoying these things, that whole... Yeah. You know, so I think it's like so little time to be wild and free. So many things that you want to be. Um, something about the space between the cradle and the grave. Mm. And then he, I think the last line of that section says, uh, "These are special times, and they won't be coming round again." That's it's almost it. like he's almost like he's grateful for having this opportunity to record with the original four guys again, even though we know that that's a bit of a sham anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, well. Penny, if I may jump in there, I'm convinced this is a Graham lyric and okay. largely Graham music. I, I think I can hear his kind of sequences. And yes. the, the and I'm partly I'm getting this because it actually says in Liam's book that there's a quote somewhere saying Graham wrote this about um, his new daughter. But wow. but also, also was it that, R Rihanna? Was that her name, Paul? Ro Ro Rosanna. I'm Rosanna. Not sure. I'm yeah, not, yeah. Not sure. Um, but. Um, these are the special times, and from the cradle to the grave, that is almost a rewrite of the lyric to the promise, which is by Wax, which is one of their best songs. Mm. And that's a, th you know, that's a theme that the life journey theme comes up a lot in Graham and Andrew's songs, actually. Yeah, good so, point. These are the promises. 
I reckon this is a Graham lyric, and 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 he is writing about his daughter. But you know, the interpretation you you got, Panny, is is equally valid, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and thanks for the clarification, Paul. Again, I haven't read the book, so that it's good to know that. Right. Uh, you know, this section is Graham. You know, I mean, it leans towards being Graham's or is Graham's, and. I think it, it stands out from the rest of the track, and, and it's one of the better parts of the track, too. Um, it, it really kind of makes the song come alive, you know, that section of it. You know, it gives it some of the heart and soul that, you know, a lot of the album doesn't have. Yes. Yeah, my only frustration with the track, really, if I'm honest, is Eric seems to be straining a bit. It's very, very high. Uh, it might just be beyond his range, or maybe, you know, what he didn't quite have his chops together on the day. Am I being unfair? He just seems to be straining. I think he is a little bit. I would also like to add that I absolutely love the song as well. I think it's a beautiful song. Um, in contrast to you, I find the lyrics absolutely unfathomable. <laughs> um, I do like the bit that Panny was referring to, the power of communication, every little word a big sensation. I presume... He's got in his hand either one of the first mobile phones or a Palm Pilot or something. <laughs> but thereafter, it just it's, it's absolutely unfathomable to me. They start talking about there's a special substance good for you. I've, I've no idea what that was. <laughs> um, reading through the lyrics, because it's easy. To, I know, notwithstanding what you've said, Sean, about the, the sleeve, you can always get the lyrics very easily on uh, Google. Um, yes, I, I know, but I don't. I don't like listening to albums with Google. Do you know what I mean? I'm I'm so old-fashioned, Andrew. Pathetically so. Um, you know, I like the sleeve, and I, I like to sit between the speakers, and um, yeah. And I guess if I'd had the the album longer, longer than a year, because that's 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 how long oh, I've owned it. If I'd if I'd had it that long. I, I would have let the, the lyrics kind of percolate and, and probably looked at them on Google. But I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating this album as a listener who's bought the album. Yeah, I find myself a little bit caught out in, in our previous discussions about not knowing the lyrics well enough, so I thought I would, <laughs> I would study them, not listening to the music, but just reading them as if I would read I'm it. glad you have, I, and honestly, because um, I've absolutely not, not studied these. It's all the songs on the album. I find, I find them terribly difficult to understand. Yeah. We'll, we'll come to some more later. Having said that, and I, I said it on Windows, said lyrics, you know, they don't have to be wonderful to make a great album. And I, I, despite my dislike of the lyrics, I think, I think it's a great song. Mm. I think there are several really good songs here. And I agree with you, Andrew, uh, that line about, uh, you know, here's a substance or whatever he says. Uh, that's probably the worst lyric in the song. And if that line... Could have, could have been changed to something different. Uh, I think it would have made the song a lot better. That yeah. that line it kills it a little bit, you know. It's not very poetic, is it? Or... I'd like to introduce you to a special substance good for you. Yeah. It's, well, it's, well, hold on. If this if this is about his baby daughter, that that's just breast milk, isn't it? And the <laughs> uh, that's what I generally think it is. And and every word a new sensation each time she comes up with a new word, something like that. Okay. That's the way I read it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Good points, Paul. Good points. Yeah, and the we, we can forgive it now. The whole of the planet. Right, well, that that one's got by me. <laughs> so maybe it's a song about the joy of life. Yeah, that's what I that's what I think it is, and that that feeds back into the middle eight, talking about the 
you know, the, the precious time between the cradle and the grave. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah that, so uh, very much in contrast with the, the negative songs Graham was singing on 10 out of 10, um, we've got a, a much, more, much more positive message, haven't we, from Graham? Andrew, you were saying that, that there are lots of songs on this album that you really like. What are the other highlights for you? Very next one, Fill Her Up, I Really Love. I love the tempo of it. I think it's back... To, well, it's... I was going to say it's back to the quirkiness of the original four members of 10CC, but then it gets very odd lyrically again. So I love the tempo, and it starts out, and you think, well, this is a kind of nice nice theme here. They're sort of saying, women don't have to be pencil thin, thin to be beautiful. The, <laughs> the narrator of the song likes his women curvy, etc. You think all so far, so very moral, etc. And then the tone changes completely, and... He goes into a liquor store and gives the, gives the man a wink as if he's trying to deliberately get the girl pissed and, um, yeah. and fill her up with more and more alcohol. That's not him, though, is it? He's, isn't he doing what he did on Working Girl, what one of them did on Working Girls, and kind of looking at the way women are treated? That, you know, give them a few cherry bees and they're anybody's. Do you know what mm, I mean? Maybe, maybe, but if you read the lyrics through... It doesn't kind through of a microscope, like that. It you say. It's very, very weird. Yeah. However, I love the song. Right. I get back to that thing I mentioned earlier where Eric's just writing from a weird point of view. I mean, I... This song to me is, you know, the lyrics seem to describe a man who's upset about his woman getting caught up in that health craze and maybe even leading to some type of eating disorder or something that he's trying to uh, eliminate. And he's blaming Jane Fonda for that. I mean, that's a great line. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, you know, he takes a woman to the restaurant and attempts to get her to eat and then to a liquor store to fill her up with alcohol, you know, to kind of get off, off of her soapbox that she needs to be, you know, uh, thin, you know, and again, it almost hints that, you know, he's being a little overwhelming to the woman and, you know, almost, uh, you know, becoming the problem here. Um, again, it's it's not 100% clear, but I don't know. I, I'm not, it's not convincing to me that we should be treating our spouses or our loved ones like this. I don't know. Eric seems to sing the song with a lot of, uh, you know, like he really means it. And maybe, I don't know, I, I think it falls short in that sort of respect trying to force the woman to you know get off this um, idea that she's got to kill herself you know exercising and, and making herself pencil thin I, I honestly think that this is a critique of the way many men treat women as objects if if they if they fill them up with alcohol you know they'll be easy meat sexually yeah, it, that that's how yeah. i take it and but that's abusive if you think about it oh, well it, it is but and i think eric's eric or graham is being uh, obviously critical of, of that kind of behavior and it, it it's funny the title and the chorus fill her up it, it, it's like he's talking about petrol isn't he chaps uh, you know gas putting gas in a car Show it, 
and I find that that whole, that whole image re- really, really distasteful. Is it me just imagining too much? I agree with you, Sean. It it, it just it's, it just seems to be just an odd uh, personification of what those words might mean to some yeah. you know, people. But but I mean, the song is is basically saying you know fill her up with all the calories and everything that she's been missing because she's trying so hard to you know be this uh, yeah the, the, this model of uh, of of kind of uh, thinness. Musically, this is so boring to me that yeah, I've never I agree, bothered. Paul. I've never bothered with the lyrics. It reminds me of. Uh, it sounds like one of the Eagles' worst songs, "Get Over It," which is another ranting song. But I even prefer Don Henley's "Bile" to mm. to, to this kind of muddled and, and rather disturbing lyric. musically it's no it does nothing for me no I, i'm with you paul it, it's it's like you can you can smell the dirty floorboards the watery beer um you can see the, the you know the piano over in the corner it, it's of all the american influences that they could have used on this album yeah. I, I'm, I'm really disappointed they went with kind of sub zz top Uh, it just it does nothing for me and Andrew I think you're probably laughing aren't you you're laughing into your coffee there because you think well of course Sean would say that because he doesn't like desperate Dan no I don't and, and 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 I put my hands up I don't like the blues particularly as a genre and and I don't like the kind of music that's kind of filtered down from the blues I struggle even with Led Zeppelin and the Stones for that well, reason well okay we I think we need to jump in here this is an important point because Eric's um, default setting, or not more than that. I mean, that's the wrong way to put it. His his heart is his the foundation, blues, perhaps. His foundation is the blues. And if if you look at the, I was thinking about this the other day. If you look at his writing style, everything pre nineteen seventy two, and with some exceptions, everything post let's say nineteen eighty, mm. is very blues based. He re- he returns to what he likes. Now now that's maybe a bit too basic for for us or a lot of fans of 10ZC. But why but, shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? Yeah, why shouldn't he? Exactly. What's more, if you flip it around, what's more interesting is how he was able to drag himself up to an incredible level of songwriting in a, in a really vibrant, brightly harmonic, you know, mm. palette of, of, of colours, which he was able to employ from 1972, you know, through to the late 70s. Yes. When he was... He was fantastic. He was on fire in that period. Mm-hmm. But you do get, unlike the other three, you get you really get the impression that he's gone back to what is you know close to his heart, his his natural way of writing, which do, which is derived from blues and yes. rock and roll. And and there's not a lot to, for pop fans to to hang their hats on when he does that. Really. No, but but fans of rhythm and blues will will get real joy from hearing Doctor John playing on this. And the next track, something special, won't they? He does. He plays fabulously well, doesn't he? Oh, it's, God, it's, yeah. it, it, you know, wonderful fingers. It's brilliant. It, it's brilliant. Yeah. 
something special I think is another good example again I'm maybe overthinking this but I like the verse in something special and then tagged on you get this kind of fairly standard blues refrain you know the the, the chorus itself if you like the re, you know the refrain with the title in it mm. they sound like two bits of songs uh joined together um and you know certainly that <clears throat> that last refrain sounds like an eric piece of work okay so again you're hearing eric writing the blues as it were But there are some interesting, leading up to the chorus, Paul, there are some interesting chords going on just yeah. just before the, that remind me of some of the stuff on Deceptive Bends, actually. And, yeah, right. And, they, and yeah. They, they've got a, a Graham-y taste to them. Um, and, 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 and again, however much I dislike the song, and I do dislike the song, uh, it's nice to hear um, Eric and Graham actually kind of combining a, a mole- at a molecular <laughs> level on a song. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not. Yes, they're not bolting too many albums together and putting it out and calling it 10cc. They're not. Right. They're not writing separately or, or kind of emailing a, a verse or a chorus to each other. They're actually in the room saying, "Do you know what? There's a lovely chord that's going to twist it into the chorus nicely." And and that that for me is a saving grace of something special. It is. It, it's, it's just those chords that we'll hear in a second. going to just add sean uh, it's interesting that you're not a big blues fan and it's taken me a lot of years to get into it and you know some of the blues is is tough to get into and when a band takes something like the blues and tries to incorporate it into a pop tune sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah, and, yeah. and if you're a a listener to pop and you get this you know other type of music that you're not really into sometimes it, it does leave a, a bad taste in your mouth hmm. and and yet I think, you know, like, for instance, uh, something special, I think it works really well in that song. And not, not okay. only because of, not only because of Dr. John's wonderful piano playing, yep. but, you know, it, it's a silly song, really. It's not mm-hmm. a real, I mean, it's just got a straightforward, you know, chord sequence in it, which, you know, a lot of the blues is really just straightforward and not yep. very complicated. There's three or four chords in the song, you know, da, da, you know. Uh, but but sometimes you know simplicity makes something work very successfully in my ear. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with simplicity. There's nothing wrong with three chords. Yeah, um, and there, there's a, a there's a very old fashioned treatment, isn't there, with something special? Um, I'm yeah. not I'm not sure if it's elements of fifties a little bit. I don't know. Is it doo wop? What am I hearing there? Andrew it's Paul. probably I am a bit out of my comfort zone. Sort of jelly roll, New Orleans, and yeah. that, that's probably that's where Dr. John comes in, isn't sure. it? Like, that's the kind of that's what we're hearing, I think. Boogie that's woogie, what, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Boogie woogie, kind of uh, like you said, uh, a New Orleans feel to it. And I, I love Dr. John singing on it too. His gruff voice <laughs> against Eric's voice. Take you to heaven tonight. 
I mean, when I first got the album, this was my first favorite on the album. I remember, really, you know, putting this on tapes of music, and you know, it would kind of just come on after hearing, you know, something by somebody else, and it'd be like, oh, wow, and it just had, this has a great feel, and and it also reminds me. You know the section where Graham is singing the backing vocals. You know the la, la, you know they're they're simple and sweet. It's kind of almost. I always think of Deceptive Benz and uh, what is it, Honeymoon uh, with B Troop. Yeah, yeah. You know it, it reminds me a lot of that kind of in a sideways sort of way. Another saving grace for this, a, a track that I, I really usually skip, to be honest, but what really does save it is the fact that I think Eric and Graham are genuinely having fun on this. Yeah. Does anyone else feel that? I, I, I completely agree. I think you've made your point very well, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it gets back you know, to the point of view of, of the narrator, uh, Again, it seems to go wrong again. You know, Eric's talking about stealing money from the poor boxes, and here you are talking about Eric again. You see, I'm I'm joining maybe, Andrew, Andrew's camp now. It, yeah, maybe it, it could it, well be it could well be Graham. It could well be Graham, but but the narrator, it just seems to be. You know, he's committing you know these crimes because he's trying to, you know, you know provide things for a demanding love and interest, and he's got to get the money to get her these things so that. You know, she can, you know, take him to heaven tonight, as he says in the song. Take me to heaven tonight. Yep. Let's <laughs> say it again. I'm sorry. No, no, I don't, I don't want to repeat that. It sounded awful. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it you know, the, the listener understands that he can go to jail for these things. And, he, and you know, and I, and I mean, I always get that, you know, he's, he's doing all these things to please her. But if he goes to jail, she's just going to get another sucker to take care of the business for her, and it's <laughs> and it just seems to be another, you know, another one of those songs with a character who's just not somebody that you're likely to really want to hear about or know about. Uh, you know, dark, uh, nasty uh, mm. character. It's kind of a lot of the songs, you know, kind of lean towards a character that's not very, uh, you know, very uh, very likable. Uh, yeah, very likable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and, it, and and again it. That, that's the one weak point that I have with the song. Sure. Anyone like the the transition that's very Windows in the Jungle from from the end of this one into the next track, Welcome to Paradise? It kind of segues, doesn't it, in that very Windowsy way. Looking at the credits, the ones I can actually make out uh, on 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 my the booklet that I'm looking at now, "Woman in Love" has f- just four musicians on: Eric, Graham, Jeff, and Freddie. You know, a very small band, very kind of '80s 10cc style. And then there's a few more on the next track. Filler up again. There's sort of five or six. Same with um, with something special. And then "Welcome to Paradise." has about 90 musicians on. I reckon about 650 grand of that recording money, Andrew, went on recording Welcome to Paradise. Am, am I supposed to love this track? Like 
Nobody's supposed to like anything if they don't like it. I love it. Uh, but I've heard a lot of people say that they don't. Okay. Um, I love, I certainly love it musically. And I think we're hearing a little bit of Graham here when he sings. I presume it's Graham that's singing There's a Coup Coming On and Did Somebody Say. Oh, I'm wondering if it's Lowell that sings I Shouldn't Have Come, Why Did I Come? Okay. Um, but lyrically, again, I'm just lost with this one. So he starts off, he's um, he's leaving the woman he he loved um, for a very unclear reason and, and going to, to resettle or whatever somewhere in uh, the Caribbean, I guess. Somewhere and with, yeah, somewhere with... Some, I don't know some... what the coup is that's happening. And um, yeah. I don't understand why he was trapped and whose spell he was under. If he was, if he was, if he'd left behind the woman he loved, or why he'd left them. It certainly, to use the, the lyrics of the song itself, it certainly didn't jump up and hit me what it actually meant. Yeah, I, I've looked at the lyrics on this one quite a bit, and I get the impression that the narrator is saying goodbye to his family to go somewhere for either a vacation or, mm. you know, he's been signed, you know, to go somewhere to work. Um, and then he finds that when he gets, you know, gets to this place, which ultimately is a paradise, he finds that, you know, the local government or the local place is having, you know, some type of problem yeah, some uh, kind of military takeover. Yeah, yeah. where there's a coup going on or something, and he, you know, and he's either in such a trance from being in this place or from the woman. I think there's a woman that is referred to, or he says something about. Uh, I can't remember the exact lyrics, but there is a little bit of the section where he's talking to a woman, and yet he's so caught up in still calling this place a paradise in spite of this coup going on and everything else that's going on. And then he ultimately decides, you know, I shouldn't have come here. And yeah. I mean, that's the way I see it, it's, it's, yeah, and yet he's almost, you know, like denying, you know, really having to leave this place, which he's ultimately labeled as a paradise. It's a, it seems to me a deliberate juxtaposition of the, should we say, the usual paradise setting that 10CC have on an album, don't they? Uh, usually in the Caribbean, and you can normally hear some fake steel drums, etc., etc. And I'm not going to mention the R word, I promise. Um, yeah, thank <laughs> it's you. It's a matter of time. You have done, you know. <laughs> Okay, well, I have, yes. Um, and, but, but for once, I think Eric or Graham are trying to shatter that usual um, cocktail, sun and sand kind of paradise with something more dramatic and kind of, shall we say, O-Effendi-like. Uh, doesn't work for me, uh, simply because I think there's a coup coming on is just pathetic. I think it's so, yeah. such a weak line. Uh, there's a coup coming on, a coup coming on. It's sung in a really casual way, the melody's really casual, and the lyric is just so silly. And it, it annoys the hell out of me because the chorus is actually quite good, I think, on this one. Um, I know that Liam really, really rates the chorus, but I'm afraid the, the coup coming on bit, it spoils the whole thing for me. Yeah, 
I think the song is a mess, and even tying in that line uh, of Annie, get your gun. Yeah. You know, it's a reference to some American play. Uh, I'm trying to think, is it Gilbert and Sullivan or uh, Paul? Maybe you know, but uh, but still tying it into that, tying that into the song just kind of kills it. And I also find this to be, you know, another sad attempt to rewrite Dreadlock Holiday again mm. in a kind of sideways way yes but uh, do it just, in doing it in a slightly more edgy way perhaps yeah, i mean it's got a great riff definitely it has a great riff but yeah. uh, again uh you know it, it's well, almost i think it's got a, a great verse and a great a great chorus so i think it, musically it's great i love it mm, okay okay yeah, I, I don't disagree with that andrew i think it does have you know some strong bits and and we haven't said the r word but i, I think it's that, more it's more the c word this time uh, i think it's more calypso to be completely <laughs> honest we, i mean the four of us have been having secret discussions about reggae haven't we yeah which we right. yeah. which we will yeah. not share uh, but yeah. uh yeah but I, I i i strongly think this is more calypso to be honest yeah it's pleasant enough it's pleasant enough yeah i'll chip in a few things um i mean one th- interesting thing, again, from Liam's book is Graham is quoted, I think it's Graham, quoted as saying that the, the demo, mm. the original version of Welcome to Paradise, was was fantastic. Uh, they both really loved the song and they felt it got away from them in the studio. Mm. So when we say when we're saying it's a mess, you know, it might it might be because it just wasn't realized right. And they maybe threw too many ideas and musicians at it. I don't know. Mm. Thinking it was something really strong. I don't think it's that strong. It's it's a virtual rewrite, not musically but thematically, of Dreadlock, Dreadlock Holiday, isn't it? I mean, yeah, where, Dread, you get the bad, where you get the baddies coming in. Exactly. If, well, if, if if Dreadlock Holiday was like the two week vacation, this is as we've already sort of said, the six month work placement. Um, hmm. It's even it's even got the um, the key change in the third verse, just like in Dreadlock Holiday, to kind of give it a bit more energy. At exactly the same point, and it performs <laughs> You're absolutely exactly. right, Paul. You know, they tend to see don't normally resort to that device, but they, they did on at least those two occasions. I actually find there's a coup coming on, not only clumsy, slightly distasteful, mm. because if you're going to write a serious song, you've got to do it with a very light touch and, and tends to see at their best, like Oh Effendi, which is pretty, you can get into deep water with those kind of subjects. They do it so deftly that, that, it, yeah. that it works brilliantly. Here, there's a coup coming on, just sounds like... Um, it jokes, protagonist, it? It, well, yeah, it's a bad joke because if, if if the protagonist really is in a dangerous situation, it just sounds slightly off key, if you like. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I, Ill thought out. Yeah, it's it, it, at the end of the day, it's a pretty. It, it's not a great song, and I don't think they ruined it in the production. I just don't think they had a great song to begin with. Sure. Do you feel it's fair of me, chaps, to to kind of start grouping? the 10 cc songs of the 80s and 90s into well actually we can go back to the, the 70s actually in terms of eric and graham songs that they're always attracted to the same i think the same five themes money mm-hmm. and c- corruption with money 
mm-hmm. booze, yeah. I'm happily married, and trouble in paradise. Yeah, that just seems to be popping up a lot more than ever before. Uh, you know, I, I think it even goes, you know, so far back uh, to another song we discussed in the past where, you know, they're talking about uh, sitting in a di- having dinner in a restaurant. What tune is that that we talked about? Oh, uh, it was 24 hours, I think, or one of those. But yeah, but there's love. He's sitting in a restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that happens a lot, and he's got a lot of middle-class characters knocking around in posh restaurants drinking wine, hasn't he? The word restaurant, and it also pops up in Mirror Mirror. (laughs) Somebody should do a word count. Yes. It's a a weird word to pop up such a lot. I mean, maybe if cafe came up more, or, you know, fast food outlet, but... Um, yes. Yeah, we, we seem to be hearing restaurant quite a lot. And 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 you don't have restaurants mentioned terribly often in rock and roll. <laughs> you have the, the word diner is allowed, and well, bar yeah. and the word bar is allowed. I think well, Alice's rest Alice's yeah. restaurant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Always the exception. Yeah. Uh, hang on, they're coming to me now. Scenes from an Italian restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Paul. All right. Uh, each exception proves the rule. <laughs> Can I, can I throw Kevin's beautifully sung "Stars Didn't Show" in your direction, chaps? First, well, firstly, it's the best song on the record. Um, so I'm, in my opinion, somewhat surprised that that Kevin got it. Maybe it was a kind of a carrot dangled, you know. Um, you know, you because uh, as we know, it was a sort of contractual obligation. I mean, just going, we probably need to mention this. Kevin and Lowell were released from their contract yes. as long as they guested on this record, mm. which isn't a very positive way of looking at their contributions. No. Um, uh, although Kevin, you know, said he really enjoyed working with the other two, notably the four of them never actually were there at the same time, but Kevin worked closely with, with Eric and Graham for a couple of days and and he sang lead on this song The Stars Didn't Show. I find this song a little odd to listen to because it's so obviously an Eric melody. You get Kevin phrasing like Eric, and he he sounds a little out of his comfort zone. Mm. He sounds like it's a bit like when you hear Graham singing the film of my love, and in my ears that sort of does my head in because it it sounds so much like Ke- <laughs> it is Kevin, isn't melody. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so although Kevin does it, it's always, it's great to hear him sing, of course. But I prefer the version, must be a live version, where Eric sings a lead. Uh, it just sounds more comfortable. Love 
and I don't it's nitpicking really because it is lovely to hear Kevin you know riding at the top of all the other harmonies but it just sounds the harmonies themselves are a little bit messy there's a little kind of pushing and pulling going on yes. and, and considering Lol is also on this track all four of them are on it mm. uh, it, it doesn't really come off in the way I, I would have hoped Yes, and they seem to trip over each other's feet on the uh, the rhyme of worse and rehearse, which I'm not keen on anyway. Uh, I'm, mm. I'm with you. It's a bit yeah. The harmonies are just that tiny bit straggly, but I actually think yeah. the, blo- the block harmonies are lovely on this pool. I think. Okay. Uh, in my opinion, I think it's it's one of those songs where you get a really nice wodge, and the fact that it's the four voices together. Um, for one of the first and last times ever, um, mm. uh, is it, it, a joy. For me, I, I wish the song kind of lived up to um, to that honour. Really, the joy I get from hearing Kev sing a lead vocal with 10cc is enormous. But he does feel out of his comfort zone because I, I just feel that the. The material is a tiny bit on the bland side. Well, I, it, I think it's a, it, it really pulls me in. I think it's the best song on the record. Sure. I, and I, and I, do like, I do like the lyrics, particularly towards the end, where I can't remember exactly how they go, but the singer looks out, he sees faces everywhere, and he... And, this is the way I read it. He actually sees his idols yes. in the audience. Uh, it kind of brings the whole song full circle. Mm-hmm. I really like that. And, no, and I like I'm not that. Sure, I'm not, I think that's what they're getting at, although it's almost a little submerged. If, um, it could have perhaps been made even a little clearer, because that's really quite moving. Yes. You, know, you, picture, you picture the guy singing, and he sees Rory Orbison and Buddy Holly or whoever it is in the audience looking back at him, and they inspired him in the first place. Yes. I think that's great. If they could have done that in a video, yes. uh, that, that, could, that could have been great. And I, I, I love the, the premise of the song, actually, um, the fact that this is, this is singing... In a very personal way to those those those, those idols from the fifties yeah. and sixties, I think that's a yeah. lovely idea. I agree. I think it's a really good song. I, I really enjoyed it. And I agree. It's lovely to hear Kevin singing again. Again, I'm confused by the lyrics. It's only hmm. because. I'd read somewhere that it was about Roy Orbison and, and other stars dying or something, that I, I had a ve- even a vague idea um, what it was about, but it talks elsewhere about a band not showing and carrying a curse and you know, being a particular night that the stars didn't show. So it doesn't make sense lyrically to me at all. Mm. It doesn't stop me thinking it's a very good song, though. Looking at the song as a whole, I mean, it is it is a song that's, you know, a heartfelt tribute to the lost peers or the lost idols of the past. It's also kind of glorifying them in a way where, you know, they took some of the, you know, the blackness or darkness out of our lives. And, you know, we turn we turn to the music or, you know, to the things that these uh, idols or peers have to offer to sometimes hide from our own problems. And it does, you know, make a reference to, you know, to Roy Orbison. And that's the obvious one, you know, the line, uh, the figure dressed in black sitting down my back. Uh, I mean, I know that... Graham has probably mentioned that in an interview or two that that was directly about Roy Orbison. Yes. 
Uh, who, what, of course, what was extremely helpful uh, as a mentor, wasn't he? Um, yeah, absolutely. even absolutely. you know, as a casual passing acquaintance, uh, a very powerful influence on on Eric. Yeah, but I think the song takes it a little bit deeper than that. Uh, as Andrew says, uh, there seems to be, uh, you know, a reference to that night where the stars didn't show. And I, I think there's some criticism, maybe a little bit of criticism, about how some of these artists, you know, were lost. Some of these idols were lost to some of their own personal abuses, uh, whether it was drugs or alcohol or whatever it was. Mm. Either way, it brings forth, you know, the idea that, you know, like I said before, that these people brought us so much joy with their music and, and you know, we love them for better or for worse, I think, is what it says. Yes. And we, and we recognize that their lives are somewhat of a blessing to us. Um, I, I think there's a line in it, uh, mountains may crumble, worlds fall apart, something like that. Um, something about the road being long, but I know in our heart that your spirit will always be with me. I mean, it's saying that the you know that this music is always going to stay in us and continue to you know be a positive thing in our lives. Yes, uh, I think uh, it, it is interesting that you know Eric gave this to Kevin to sing because it, it is a bit out of Kevin's range. I think he sings it pretty well and he succeeds, you know. But uh, but again, he struggles a little bit in parts and mm. and that version that's on the in concert album uh, that came out the following year. Uh, you know when they tour Japan. Yes, uh, that live version is quite good, and Eric sings it. You know, the way I think it's meant to be sung. Mm. This this version on this album, you know, this this production to me is a bit clunky. Yeah, seems to long at times. Doesn't always come across too well. It could no. have been the highlight of the reunion because, like we said, all four of them are on it. But uh, you know, I still think it, it kind of comes short a bit, and I think. Uh, Yes, if, if only if only if it, it had been produced by Eric yeah. Graham, Kevin, and Lol with Eric <laughs> with Eric at the mixing desk. Yeah, this could have been the real Tennessee C track on the album, and, yeah. and it, you know, and it, and it ends up not succeeding in that. That's at all. right, and instead you've you've got American FM radio guitar solo, you know, wailing over the top of it. And there are so many of those on this album. It's a shame because there's a moment right at the end of the chorus. Paul in particular, I'll throw this one out too. I love, <laughs> really love the end of the chorus. There's a, a couple of chords that shift under <clears throat> the melody and it's it's fabulous. It reminds me a lot of the end of the chorus of That's Why God Made the Radio by the Beach Boys. Um, again, quite an old-fashioned kind of um, chord structure, but there, there's that lovely shifting sand beneath the melody that I think is really fantastic. <laughs> For me, to score own goals like these blooming Jefferson Speedwagon guitar solos everywhere, <laughs> it, it drives me nuts. Yeah, you know, you know what they should have done? They should have just changed the uh, combination on the lock and locked Gary Katz and Donald Fagan out for a couple of days, and yeah, and, and just like, and just the four of them done it, and then. Uh, um, but you know that that would have been nice, but it wasn't to be. No, that's it, right, and. Uh, you know, I feel sorry for Mr. Landau because he's an amazing guitarist, but yeah. he, he's made to wreck some of these songs, in my opinion. Uh, it's just, just wrong. It's just wrong. And all the time I'm listening to it and thinking, crikey, three quarters of a million quid. 
uh, for an album that isn't even going to be released in the market it's designed for. We could have mm. put this album out for a tenner. <laughs> honestly, we'd have copied it onto a few cassettes. We'd have got it released in America. I think, honestly, it it, it really. I'm, I'm. In fact, I'm going to have a cigarette in a second, chaps, because I've got myself. <laughs> I've got myself a, a little bit worked up, as I as I am won't. Um, okay. Yeah, because Sean. these are great songwriters who've been wrecked by awful, awful, awful production in my humble opinion. I was going to say, though, it hasn't gone unnoticed, Sean, that you got your Beach Boys reference in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've been, I had a little sweeper to myself to see how many, how many minutes it was going to take. I was convinced you were going to do it on um, Welcome to Paradise, which has got the line Bad Vibrations in it. I thought, oh, perfect opportunity. No, I, I deliberately didn't mention that line. I've got <laughs> it written down in front of me. But um, I've not mentioned Genesis yet. Paul, are you going to mention Genesis? Uh, when... When I well, I've got a contract with Bet Fred. Actually, I can only mention it after a certain number of minutes, so I, I shouldn't have let it slip. Oh, sorry, I've yeah, I've wrecked it. Yeah, yeah. second yeah, half because... only, is it? There's a lyric line in in this song that. I really like, and I shouldn't really, because I think it's a bit cheesy. But I think I'm right in saying it's the only time 10cc ever used Cockney rhyming slang. Do you know the line I'm talking about? Oh yeah, the, the Niagara's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the green-eyed monster has got me by the Niagara's. What's your explanation of of, of that rhyme, Panny? Oh, I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I yeah. mean, I'm well aware of the uh, Cockney rhyming slang and uh when I, I remember first hearing it i kind of had to do a double take i did a double take and i went wait he's saying niagara and i thought niagara falls <laughs> of course you know yes uh, it was very obvious and yeah and i and i and i like that it has a bit of englishness to it if you like you yes. know uh, a lot of americans would would capture that they'd what is why is he talking about niagara falls you know <laughs> jumping over the falls with a, in a barrel you know something like that but yeah so just so just to be clear to put it in a 10 cc context we're talking about we've all got niagara's and brains but some's got <laughs> niagara's and chains <laughs> very good paul very good Yeah, it's probably wise because that would have been banned again, wouldn't it? No doubt. Uh, but yeah. but again, that line has got some of my favourite chord changes on the whole record. Um, it, it feels to me like a Graham trick of just throwing in those kind of accidental, slight key changes um, that just take it to another place. And I think that's it's really effective. It's a decent track, this. And actually, I think it's one of my favourites on the record. It's got a quirkiness, a gentle comedy. I like the way Graham's playing that kind of, those gentle, clean, chorusy guitar riffs through so many of the songs. It's very distinctive Graham sound, but I, I, I really, really like it. And the chorus has got, again, fantastic counterpoint harmonies, where it, it sounds to me like Graham singing, singing against Eric. It might be lol, actually, but I really think it's it's Graham's voice kind of that they're battling against each other. I think it's great. Yeah, 
you're talking about, you know, where it, I think it is Graham, clearly Graham, you know, mm. I want what you got, you know, mm. that, that, mm. It, yeah, it's, I mean, again, that's, that's another highlight of the album for me only because as we've said about other tracks, uh, it really sounds like Eric and Graham are having a good time doing that. Yes. Um, you know, the subject matter is a little bit dark. I mean, I, I get the impression from the song, uh, you know, that the narrator seems to be, you know, very jealous about everything that's going on with love interests. You know, those who are contacting her by phone or, you know, knocking on the door. I mean, I think there's a line about uh, someone else's lotion on my side of the mattress. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, implies that, it implies that she's cheating on him and he's very, you know, seems to be very paranoid about this relationship with her. I mean, uh, Again, I, I think he even goes into that line where he says, uh, the more I get to know, I find out how much I don't know. Mm. I mean, I, I think he's convinced that this relationship is on the end. And, you know, even though he's got a burning passion for her, she seems to be kind of giving him the sh- cold shoulder and moving on to other things. I, I think it's just, you know, the character is really the one who's creating these problems for himself, though. Yeah, Yeah, it's okay. It's funny. This this song, I actually woke up this morning with this song in my head, and for a few minutes, I couldn't work out what song it was. I knew I could hear Eric singing in my head. I knew it was a, a song of Meanwhile, and it took me mm. a minute to uh, recall it because it, the bit in my head didn't have the title in, and eventually I got there. But yeah, it's it's okay. I'm, I'm with you, Sean. I hear I hear the sort of uh, sneaky little. Um, Graham sequences in there, mm-hmm. the sort of the, the tumble down at the end of the chorus. Yeah, possibly. definitely. Yeah, there's, and there's lots of there's a, a real m- melodic arc um, on this song where the chords go up and then descend down, and the, and the bass line kind of descends with the chords. It's nice. Yes, yeah, right. Very, very Graham trick. Yeah, they've, they've, it's. I'm still not that sold on the song. Mm. Uh, it's okay. Um, it could have been much better, you know. Um, again, I think it's the victim of the production. You've got, in places, you've got a really... Uh, these kind of horrible power chords uh, on, on a, with a distorted electric guitar. But yeah. it struck me the other day that if they'd... Again, if they produced it themselves back in the old days, um, they might well have done a honeymoon with B Troop t- treatment of it. A bit up-tempo and quirky. Because I think there's there's the energy and humour there, and the inventiveness is in there somewhere, um, but it's lost in in this kind of pedestrian treatment for me. If if they'd gone down a deceptive Ben's route with it, we could have been looking at a a ten cc favourite. <laughs> That's a very good. That's a very good point. I think get, neither Gary Katz nor, by extension, his team of session musicians understood 10CC at all. Mm. And and our guys sound stymied by the whole mm. recording process. They just they're not able to break out of that kind of grooves that mm. you know sterile grooves that that Katz is 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 bringing forth as it were. So yeah, yeah that's it. 
You're right, because it's quite a tensey sounding song, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and, and with that said, it it needs a tensey production on it. I mean, mm-hmm. and there's, yes. yeah, and that's and that's the thing that I think kills the song again. Uh, it, it just has so many elements of what tensey could have embellished, especially. You know, even that section where Graham and Eric are singing together, it, it sounds great, but it just needed that little 10cc production touch to make it that much better. Yeah, give it a uh, personality. It, it's too, this this song, like you say, Sean. It seems like the track is just—I uh, don't know—the track is somewhere else, and, and it doesn't really kind of gel with the rest of of, of the song. It just doesn't. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't. This is one that I skip sometimes because it kind of gets under my skin. It just drives me nuts. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear something and it's just like, ugh, that riff or that sound is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. no, uh, no, I, I hear you, Andrew. Is this a song that gets under your skin or one that you you put on repeat? Listen, I like it very much, um, particularly the the chorus. I mean, the the verses do get a bit plodding. The drums certainly feel a bit plodding on this one, but the chorus really lifts it. And it is great to hear Eric and Graham sing off against each other. I am pretty sure it is it is Graham on this yeah, one. Yeah, me too. Charity begins at home. Uh, God, I, I, you know, going back and hearing this again after not hearing it for a few years. Uh, God. Uh, I, I just find it uh, to be another one of, uh, I'm pretty sure this is Eric's point of view, another one of his dismal songs. I mean, he's writing about, you know, the overabundance in the world of these charities that over, overwhelm people with requests for money, either by the mm. phone or by mail or knocking on the door. And it seems as if when he was writing this, you know, somebody was knocking on his door looking for, you know, help. Uh, you know, looking for a donation for you know for helping the less fortunate. So keep your hands in your pockets. Charity begins at home. Keep your hands in your pockets. Charity won't leave you alone. That's exactly what happened. Again, reading off Liam's book here, which is fantastic yeah. on this period. I don't know whether this is an original interview or a, an archive interview, but. It's exactly what happened. Eric and Graham were at Graham's house writing this song. Somebody knocked on the door asking asking yeah. for charity, and 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 they the song was born out of that experience. So it's it's interesting exactly how it came about. I love your take, Panny, but for me, this song is very much pointing the finger at celebrities who, in some cases, use charities to create publicity for themselves. Um, I think it's the second verse, isn't it, that talks about uh, we take to the stage, the audience rave, we're doing our bit, um, etc., etc., these are, he, he's criticizing them, isn't he? I don't think he's, it doesn't feel to me like he's criticizing people who collect money. Yeah, I, I was going to make that point too. That he's also talking about artists who do exactly that. They, you get up on stage and say, you know, we're here raising money, you know, uh, blah blah blah, and, and they they use that for publicity. So people say, oh, he's a good guy. I'm going to buy his album, whatever. Uh, yeah, there's mm-hmm. definitely that that thing in it as well, where Eric is kind of pointing it out. I mean, a perfect example, you know, is Live Aid, where 
you know, a lot of people, you know, oh, I'm going to do Live Aid, you know, to show my support for, you know, helping the people in Africa. But And meanwhile, year, every single one of my albums is going to go to, to number one. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of artists use that as something that they do for the moment. But the long term, I mean, I don't know what Bob Geldof, you know, did after Live Aid. Uh, I know he worked hard to get some of the money used correctly uh down in africa but uh that's yeah. another let's not even go into that tangent but that's right he, he couldn't get arrested musically after live Aid. Yeah. get arrested musically absolutely mm. yeah so he, he couldn't be accused of furthering his career because it killed it yeah and just i know we're off on a tangent but and sorry to plug liam's book yet again but uh why not uh, it deserves it well there's a great story in there where um the night after kevin lowell had played uh with sting uh on stage doing backing vocals i didn't know that either in france they the three of them happened to meet bob Geldof crossing the road <laughs> that's this, right this was, this was like may or june 85 or something you know and 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 Geldof apparently asked kevin lowell who then had a hit with cry to to join the the cast of live aid which is quite extraordinary and and lowell who's known for his residence about live performances actually is quoted as saying that's the one thing i wish i had done so mm. i thought, found that really really fascinating mm-hmm. i didn't know that yeah it's great the book's great the book's mm. great and talking yeah, of I... sorry talking of, of kevin lowell singing bvs on, on on live aid they are singing on this one but for the life of me i can't really hear where they are And do you know what? This is another thing that, that narks me a, a bit about the production. In the old days, you, you could pinpoint every single sound, can't you? Whether it's an, yeah. in, an instrument or a voice, you know who it is because it's got its own individuality and personality. Here, the, the voices just become these kind of homogenous notes. Yeah. And, and yeah. they all blend together in a very tasteful way. And I'm putting my fingers in the air. That, yeah. that that doesn't do it for me in a 10cc context because what we, one of the things we love about 10cc is those individual personalities coming through yeah. oh, I couldn't agree more Sean you know in my notes for this song I've written down Kevin Dollar's supposed to be on this what a waste mm. and it's also a dirge of a song I mean I think I like nine out of the ten songs on this album some more than others but I can't stand this one and Despite what Paul says, I, I, you know, it's not clear from the lyrics who is who is targeted. It's, you know, it's everyone, I think. You know, it seems to. I think he's criticizing the band. I think he's criticizing the the people who are attending the concerts. I don't know who he's criticizing Bob Geldof for not inviting Eric and Graham to be in the concert. Yeah, <laughs> so, it could well have been. Yeah, yeah. it's insane. Yeah, let me add this. I, I think it's a musically, it's a pretty good piece. It has a great riff, and there are harmonies but like you say sean you can't tell who's who mm. and that's the yes I, I think i think the harmonies are really engaging actually uh, but, it, but it could be, could be sung by any session yeah. vocalist couldn't it and, and that's one of the problems with this album is that you know a lot of the harmonies are buried in the production they need to bring the voices out much mm. more which which is one of the problems i have with this whole album is that you know we we've just discussed you know seven or eight nine of the tracks and sometimes we don't know if it's Lowell or, or Graham singing or, you know, what, who it is. Yep. And, and a lot of it is because there's just so much other stuff going on around the vocals that 
uh, it makes the vocals sound muddy and lost. Um, or they're, it's a shame. Or they're just they're cleaned up, aren't they? They're kind of fed through processors and they stick bags of this yeah. glossy reverb on top of it, and everything just becomes homogenized. It's it's a relief at the end when you hear a, a scruffy bit where I think you can hear Lol and Kev talking in the, or I think we can hear Kev's voice at least talking in the yeah. studio. I think they're asking Eric and Graham how things are going with the album. And, yeah, and, and, and that's nice. It's like a moment of reality. You know, one of my favourite parts of the album, we've said this before, Paul, uh, on, on a previous pod, that when two seconds of sound effects can bring... A, a track alive and and that's kind of what happens here for me you get that kind of burst of scruffy reality and i think yes <laughs> at last i can hear 10cc on this record yeah i want to also point out something that kind of comes to mind too you just mentioned sean you know the word reality it might even be a comment on 10cc being offered so much you know cash to reform you know mm. like that line it says business is business yes towards the you know business is business uh you know, I wonder if they're even commenting on that, the, the whole, you know, they, they were given all these parameters to reform as a band, to get them out of contracts, to, you know, you got to have, you know, Kevin and, and Lowell participate, you know, to get them out of their contract. I mean, I, I don't know the whole story in every detail, but it's almost like, you know, they're, they're mocking this whole thing just, you know, for the sake of, you know, their own personal satisfaction by saying that, you know, business is business. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know for sure, though. Business is business. We know a song about that. <laughs> Shine a light in the dark is is kind of a, a brother or sister, isn't it? To charity begins at home, kind of a, a up tempo, catchy rocker. I I secretly like it, you know. And, and Andrew, you said that it's one of your least favourites on the on the album. Yeah, but I don't dislike it. I just think it's a, a wasted opportunity because um, there's some very good bits in it. I think I love the middle eight, which I suspect Graham wrote, and I just think this was a perfect opportunity for for Graham to sing the middle eight. Yes, I like the, the middle eight too. Actually, chip, chips were down a bit. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. It doesn't it's Eric still? I don't know who sings the Please Don't Desert Me now. That seems like a different voice. I don't know who Yeah, I, I, to me, that that could well be Graham, Lowell and Kevin. Uh, but mm -hmm. I do like that. Please don't desert me now. There's just something I like about that. I think it's probably just the harmony sound, actually. The song has a good chunk of uh, warmth and heart. It's one of the few songs that does on this album. Uh, yeah, ob yeah, obvious single, Panny. I'd, I'd have preferred it as a single to Welcome to Paradise, yeah. I think. Yeah, the production is a bit bland and, you know, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't work. But the hook is strong and the performance is good in the song. And, you know, the narrator is in trouble and he's looking for a place to turn, you know, and he seems to, you know, 
be living in a dismal state. But, you know, that line where he says, uh, I think he says, uh, there were times where I cried. And then he says something like, Lord, I've had so much or I've had enough. Mm. You know, I think we've all been there at times. And the song does have some resolution. And I think there, there is an implication that others come to his re- rescue, you know, mm-hmm. when he... When he says, you know, you know, show me some mercy when I'm helpless, you know, that line we've just talked about. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a positive note, showing that the world isn't as always as bad as it seems. Uh, yes. I, I also like the line where he says, uh, I think he says, I've been down and out and I've been fit to drop. Mm. Boy, but the thought of you wouldn't let me stop. I mean, that really reinforces that, you know, there's people around him that he's depending on. Uh, you know, and, and again, I think later on he says something about, you know, there's no harmony. What does he say? No harmony in a one-man band? Mm. You know, like, you know, I can't get through this stuff alone. But again, it all, it almost leads to like a positive and joyous, uh, you know, uh, outcome, you know, because there are people around him that are helping him, you know, get through this tough time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also want to say that, you know, they did this in the live and concert album as well. I, th- I think they did this live in, the J- on, in Japan a few times. Okay, I'd like to hear a, a version of that. And, and it's and it's a great live track too. I mean, I re- I, I think it's the one that kind of stood out on that that in concert album for me. Yeah, it's uh, a, it's, it's a crowd rouser, isn't it? It's a, it's a song of celebration, and I and I think, you know, it's one of the you know the better songs that you know that uh, Eric and Graham wrote for this album compared mm. to a lot of other songs, which you know I I'm kind of pointing out all the negative char- characters that all the other songs have as narrators. Totally, and, and this is a song of hope, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the problem is that you can't you can barely hear Kevin, and you definitely don't hear Lowell on it at all, even though I think the credits say that they're on it. Mm. Just one comment on. Uh, on the backing vocals, I don't think Kevin is on this. Just looking at my notes, okay. I've, okay. I've got just lol actually. Yeah, Kevin is on Paradise, Stars, and Charity, I think, uh, and and none others. Mm. I, I'm I'm just going to read what my notes say, and I really just want to butt out after that. Sounds <laughs> like Dire Straits, Five Years Too Late. <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't yeah. like it. It's not 10 CC, is it? It's not, I don't like it. No, absolutely. And and um, and if I can butt in, Paul, with, with my comments on the last track on the album, I'm going to leave that one completely to you guys because Don't okay. Break the Promises is categorically my least favourite 10cc ballad. Please, please take it off my hands. Well, okay, I'll, I'll push back a bit. Let me start Great, on this. Thank you. First thing to say, this is a, uh, a an almost complete rewrite of a song started by Eric and, and Paul McCartney. Yes. Um, which the the bootleg, uh, the, you know, the unreleased version of that circulates. Perhaps we can have a little listen to a piece of that um, because it, it, it's quite different.
I don't, I don't mind it. I think this is a, uh, unlike most of the other songs on this record, the lyric does connect with me. I, I feel um, just a gut feel that it's Eric's lyric. Um, I, I like it. I like the lyric and it's a bit of a slow burner, but this is mm, probably one of my favorites on the record. I think it, it just, it just, I can't really explain why I just connects with me emotionally like like mm. um unlike rather a lot of the other songs done okay oh, you sappy prat <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey, that's me and, and that's swearing yeah cut cut that out sean don't put that in <laughs> <laughs> but no, leave it, leave it. Uh, are you a fan panny i used to really like this track and uh again coming back and hearing it after a few years now um you know i've heard paul mccartney's uh outtake you know and uh try to compare them and they're different you know um i think eric you know i always get this impression that eric seems to put a lot of uh credence or i don't know if that's the right word but you know i'm gonna pull the song that i wrote with paul mccartney and put it on the album you know there's you know got to have this beetle connection this paul mccartney connection and, and that's okay that's fine mm. i mean he he's done it with uh code of silence on mirror mirror as well which Yes. I believe is other outtake, and of from, course, uh, Yvonne's the one. Yeah, and yeah. Yvonne's the one, right? You yeah. know, which are out from press to play as well. Yeah, and, and again, uh, if he felt that these songs needed to be revisited and revamped for you know for the sake of uh, you know adding a track uh, to to an album that they were currently working on, you know, more power to him. But I mean, this this song really comes across as such a sappy love song. There was a time where I could do songs like this so well. I mean, I think of you know, songs like Survivor and even Don't Turn Me Away, even though I know you guys those too much. Um, oh, no, I love Survivor. Yeah, but but this this song is so drab. And, you know, a lot a lot of people say that, the McC you know, that it's a great McCartney song, but I've just grown to hate it. And I just think it comes across extremely insincere and it's overblown. And Eric's vocal, well, I mean, he's just not singing very good. It goes on for, you know, six and a half minutes which That's i right. mentioned earlier. and and of course there's an ario speed foreigner guitar solo in it as well <laughs> just for me <laughs> and the lyrics are you know so cliche you know i cannot always be there with you when something crazy takes me far away we must stick together through the madness I've got so many things I want to say. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I think he says, uh, before the world we knew was torn apart. Now when I close my eyes, I can be with you. Oh, my God. I mean. Panny, <laughs> listen, mate. You need. Here's, here's, here's one of my cigarettes. Come, come and have a cold shower. Yeah. Uh, no, is that, say it again, Sean. Yeah. Give, yeah. Me, a, give me a fucking laser. Andrew, save us from disappearing into our, into our abyss. <laughs> No, I'm going to support Paul a bit. I think it's fine. Great. I don't think it's brilliant. But, you know, what do people write about in the world, whether it's books or or poems or make films about... They, they make films about love stories or falling out of love or... or mm -hmm. really. it's, it's, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's a fine song. I certainly think it's, it's better than the, the, the songs they wrote together for press to play, which I don't like. You know, Eric all, always wears his heart on a on his sleeve as a lyricist and he often speaks very plainly i mean he often speaks very he speaks very plainly in his autobiography which in many ways i uh, admire and he's he often speaks 
plainly lyrically yes. now yeah that that can go it's a very fine line it can it can it can easily tip over into cliche and you mm. could say it does but i guess you it's there therefore it becomes all down to the delivery really whether whether or not you believe him what he's singing and it's definitely uh, it's definitely a decent vocal paul that's yeah, for sure I, I do i think it's coming through the vocal uh, and uh, Panny, I mean, horses for courses. Uh, Panny say didn't really think he was singing very good. It, you know, every time you go up to bat, when you're uh, this is a great thing about being a, uh, a songwriter or a singer. You go, you go out there, and, and either people are with you or they're not, and and everybody makes their own decision. I personally am with him. I mean, I don't think it's up there with his great songs, but I do, I do get the intent in his in his lyric and his delivery. Yeah, and, and some of those high notes are as high as he's ever sung. And, and the guy's nearly 50 at this point, and he's hitting some impossible notes with his full voice. Amazing singing, actually. And I'm and I'm getting exactly what you're saying, Paul. And and I right. and I think and I, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, He's trying too hard in this song. I think he's trying too hard to come across as, you know, something in the realm of something he's written in the past that, you know, really has the emotion in it. Uh, you know, and, and again, I, I just think this song goes on and on to, to I mean, it's six, six minutes and 46 seconds, I believe. Yeah. What's that, the same length as I'm Not In Love, practically, isn't it? It's, it's longer, and it's only like 30 seconds shy of Hey Jude. Oh, yeah, but yeah. It, but there's not really that much going on in no, the song. No, it just seems to kind of trot along with just the same simple riff. And and again, I, I think Eric is capable of something much more creative than this. And I and I agree with you. He does you know, wear his heart on his sleeve and speak speaks you know from that that you know direct place that he has. Honey, you and I are uh, you know batting for the same side here. That there are consistent problems. Um, right. and, and it's not it's not me just I don't have a mission against Eric I you know I, I, I love the ground he walks on uh, yeah you know he's a hero but his later songs become more and more and more cliche laden yeah. and I, and I, I want to try and build a little montage as, as part of this podcast when I come to edit it to demonstrate yeah. what, what's beginning to become a kind of a What's called in, in 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 lyric in singing lyrics? It's called meter. It's the way the words kind of land on the beat, the step, if you like, the gate or, or the pace of, of 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 the way lyrics are sung. And Eric is is using the same meter over yes. and over and over again in songs. And and this is a really good example of it. Uh, in that I'm 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 bored now of hearing Eric singing with that rhythmic style. And I'd love him just to kind of. Perhaps listen to some some different genres and and think right now I'm just going to sing in a very very different way here. He, he's kind of coasting, I think. Um, he's a brilliant songwriter. He can write brilliant lyrics. He's a fantastic singer, but somehow he, it just seems like he's not. He's in second gear. About some people that maybe you know The heroes and the villains And the places that they feel sway when you 
But Sean, pass me that cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, you'll, you'll need, you can enjoy a cigarette when we play Man on a Mission Cliché Bingo. Anybody want to play that with me? Uh, you know the uh, you know the B side. I, I don't even know what it was the yes. B side of. Yeah, yeah. And, which it's quite immediate and intimate sounding, to be honest. And and it does have some interesting chords. But um, <laughs> uh, let's see if we if if you can spot any of these cliches. And I, I'm I'm praying. I'm sitting here with my hands clasped together, praying that Graham and Eric meant all of these cliches as a deliberate critique in a humorous <laughs> and a ironic way. But here we go. Man at the top, pulling the strings, eye in the sky, flying the wall, man in the street, the penny drops right between the eyes, breaking the arm of the law, welcoming it into your home, snake in the grass, power behind the throne, no one to answer your call, the evidence is there in black and white, your number's up for grabs, that's two cliches for the price of one, fellows. My foot in the door, got an ace up my sleeve, see the light. Please tell me that that is a, I bought a flat guitar tutor style a little wink to say, hey, we've still got it. I think it might have been. And, and then, uh, you know, again, Gary Katz didn't, just didn't get it. Or maybe they, they, they were also to blame because if, if, if they did intend it to be a <laughs> satirical song like that, they should have made it a little bit clearer. They should so have really. I'm kind of giving them the benefit of that. Or maybe they were listening to Walter Stapleton on Consequences and think, now, <laughs> now that's an angle. <laughs> you can't <laughs> teach ducks to dance. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, you were saying I interrupted you there, mate. Well, the thing about that song is... The first, there's bits of the first which are absolutely beautiful, but yeah. the chorus is it's really horrible. It's just <laughs> so repetitive. It's just man with a mission, man with a mission. It's so repetitive. <laughs> Very clever, sort of, I'm hearing diminished chords in there, Paul, which you don't hear very often uh, in, in pop at all. You hear it in kind of music at the early part of last century. You, you hear it a bit, sort of, George Harrison would stick those in. Actually, I'm not sure I don't hear a diminished chord in, in uh, Don't Break the Promises, actually. Now, I forgot to mention that yeah. at the time. And I think, I think there are one or two in the song Don't as well, which is... Uh, Beside to paradise, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just get the impression of what I said before. Uh, it's just another one of those songs where you know, the character seems to be this negative bloke. You know, this guy that uh, you know we don't want to we don't want to know or don't want to meet. But uh, you know, I, I I see your point, Sean, with all the cliches and everything in it. It just seems to uh, it seems to go nowhere. It's got song. to be a joke, though. It's got to be a, a kind of a, a lyrical device, hasn't it? Where they were just having fun, perhaps. They shared yeah. a bottle of wine and thought, oh, you know, we could... Because they are... They're keen on blowing apart cliches, aren't they? Both of yeah. them. Kevin's good, th- Kevin's good at it. Uh, and, I, and and the two of them have had several attempts to do that. Sorry, Panny. Yeah, I think it's very tongue-in-cheek, definitely. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's not to be taken that seriously. Uh, and I agree with Andrew. The chorus just doesn't seem to... It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> it's another one that I skip, you know, when I get to that point in the CD now, you know. Yeah. I skip Lost in Love as well, which I, I actively dislike. Any fans? Nothing beyond this place. All the stars have been cast. You may try to resist the pain. 
I've read somewhere that Kevin sings it, but he clearly doesn't. And mm-hmm. so I was quite I was quite interested before I sort of did a bit of research to listen to it, but clearly it's not him. So uh, yeah, that, that's the only interesting thing about it that it, uh, that I thought it well, was going to be sung by Kevin. There is an interesting. There's a question mark in my notes, Paul. Uh, oh, is and, it? and this isn't from from reading. It's about listening to the track and. And, and I've got gritty harmonies on the chorus. Who? Mm-hmm. There's there's oh, a, there's, okay. a, there's a different voice in there. Um, oh. and, and my my gut feel is that it's an, you know a another session guy brought in because there's definitely a, a soulful voice in there and it's very gritty. I've always thought that it was Kevin yeah, oh, okay. maybe with Lowell as well. Uh, I'm not sure if Lowell's on it. Uh, it's not a very good song. Yeah, horrible melody, horrible melody. It's just... Uh. <laughs> In contrast yeah. with, with those two tracks, gents, um, D- Don't's easily my favourite of the B-sides from this record. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I think it's the strongest of the three B-sides. Uh, it's the only uh, song, you know, in this collection with Graham on the lead, mm. which is kind of interesting that he did, uh, you know, get a lead vocal on a B-side, you know, other than on the album. Yeah. Was it a co-write? It's, this sounds like a totally Graham song to me. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I didn't check... I, I think it's a co-write. Um, I, I, I'm going to just say it because we haven't said it. Uh, this one has that horrible organ intro that just has <laughs> that. that I, I can't say it. Will somebody the help C me? The C-word, <laughs> Calypso. Yeah, I don't know. It just it just kind of kills it for me right from the start. Um Mm. I think it's I think it's a good song, but I, I think it's again a little cliche. I think it's a song that's been kind of written before, you know, where they use a, a word and they add a te- you know different line, you know, going through the chorus, mm. you know, blah blah blah, don't blah blah blah. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not crazy about the structure of the song. No, but I I, I think that the chord structure is really interesting. It's more interesting than anything else on the on the actual album. And you know what I, yeah. I most like about it, gents, is the fact that it's using a mirror mirror style production in other words it's it's up front it's more intimate it's not drenched in reverb it's not um you know kind of smothered in guitar solos it sounds like graham in a studio in surrey do you know what i mean It sounds like it's more of a Graham project than it is a Gary Katz project, and yeah. I, I I don't know if that's uh, true. I'd have to I'd have to look at the credits on the CD single to see if that's the case. Uh, mm. I think I, have, I think well, this is a demo. Well, there was there was talk of um, you know Gary Katz reading magazines while they were doing vocal takes. Maybe you know maybe he did just step step away for a while, and and Graham and or Eric got their hands on a bit on the desk. Oh, maybe. It, do, it does sound a bit, uh, again, just the mere fact 
Graham's singing a lead, um, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Should have been on the album, and and it's one of the most interesting tracks. Would have mm. broken it up a bit, but um, yeah, it does. It does sound like it does point forward to Mirror Mirror. I hadn't thought of that. Mm. You're right. I think the disappointing thing for me on this one was that this, I think there's a really good opportunity for Eric and Graham to harmonise on this one. Mm. Hardly for Eric at all. I think he does come in very briefly halfway through, but there's some sections of the song I thought the voices could be combined and would go very nicely together. Totally agree, Andrew, and I, and I think it, that's one of, the, one of the main reasons for me. It feels like a demo that Graham kind of produced. Um, it doesn't feel like something that Eric was involved with. Um, I think they probably put it out because it was, you know, on tape, in the can, and they could. Do you see where I'm coming yeah. from? Yeah, could um, be. But, but a nice one. I kind of wish it, it was on the album. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird a weird thing, meanwhile, and, and it's been really enjoyable talking about it, and I can't believe that we've talked about it for so long. <laughs> um, I have it, a question for you guys. Go for it. Who were the four faces on the cover of the album? From an archive, from some soldier or something, was it? Well, the the key thing is that it's the same guy, yes. um, in as a child and as an older man, and his ear, and and I think the concept was that, you know, the ear doesn't change, or the way we 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 still hear things the same way, even though we look different. It's a good concept, but it's I, such yes. an awful cover, isn't it? It's very dour, isn't it? Dour, yeah. I should say. Yeah, Nobody think, would understand it if they weren't explained. I, I, I'm amazed to hear that uh, it's the same person. I actually yeah. think one of the people looks like a kind of descendant of Eric, and I just wondered if they were all <laughs> the descendants, but obviously not. No, yeah. they're not descendants. It's the word before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, quite, I, quite like the, I quite like the cover, actually. I like the, it's, Do you it's, really? It's, oh, it's, it's gritty, and, and I like the, the artiness of it. But it, I don't know. Does it fit the album? Yeah, it does, because the dour cover, dour mm. cover for a dour album. Graham said he, he really disliked the dark sound and the dark feel yeah. of this album. I know what it means, yeah. They started with such enjoyment, enthusiasm, and fun writing together. And, we, you know, crikey, that was in short supply over that sort of 10-year period. And uh, it, they, they'd blown it, really, hadn't they? Um, they did. They got nowhere. Can I just add something? And again, this is born out in... Um, in uh, Liam's book, I was at this Hammersmith Odeon gig in 1993 with my good mate Keith, who'd been to all the 10CC gigs that I'd been to with me up to that point. And there was a real tension in the air. That Eric was really, really pissed off. The only time he connected with the audience was to pay heartfelt tribute to Jeff Picaro, to whom he dedicated The Stars Didn't Show To. Mm. The rest of the time, and, and I was saying, we were saying to each other, were we imagining this, or was there a real atmosphere? And then, turns out, reading this book, there was. They'd had a massive Barney in the pub, because <laughs> Eric was w didn't like Graham giving all these lifestyle interviews, yes. where he, he supposedly... It, Claimed, you know, he claimed least... he'd written Shakespeare's plays and, and that yeah. his, his new wife had written the sonnets. Well, that, that was Eric's take on it, yeah. whether or not. Yeah. But it was, it's interesting that it really was born out of a tense atmosphere. And, and this, you know, 1993, we're three years down the line from those original writing sessions. The mm. album's come and gone, has done nothing. Mm. They're touring it. Uh, but it's just about they're just about back where they started and, and ready to split again. Yeah. Welcome to Paris. 
I did want to mention on the cover. Uh, I've always liked the cover too. I think it's kind of an odd cover, and it, you know, looking at those faces, they kind of draw you in. And uh, there, there were some people that said that the the, fo- the photo of the younger uh, kid did look like Graham. And when that was said, uh, I, I remember reading a rumor uh, that was thrown around that the older man was actually his father, you know, Jaime, uh, mm. who had, you know, and and. And with that in mind, I know that the album is dedicated to uh, Heim the Rhyme. That's right. Who had, That's right. Had recently passed away. Uh, it kind of makes me wonder if that was kind of something that was overhanging, you know, with Graham during the sessions too. Uh, mm. I think we hear of more of Jaime's spiritual influence on the next album, actually, don't we? Absolutely. There are a couple, a couple of songs that really do hit the mark um, with with Graham's uh, love for his dad. Welcome to. Right, thanks very much again for giving us the opportunity to to be involved. It really is an honour to be asked to to do these podcasts. I, I enjoy them so much. I think yes, it was. Could the album have been better? Absolutely. Was it a lost opportunity? A bit. But I actually think, yes, put everything aside, I think this album stands up well. I, I still love it. I just think there's six six really really good songs on it, and I'm very proud to own it and I listen to it plenty. Oh, that's great to hear, Andrew. And I, I, it's a very listenable thing for me. A, a little bit coffee table, um, but I, I say that with, um, you know, with my thumbs up because it is listenable. Uh, it's not my kind of album, but it's certainly not a bad album. I hate to finish on a down note, but I would question whether it would be better not to have Meanwhile at all than have mm. it in its current state. I, I think there's little in this album that really adds, you know, that really connects to the past of uh, the 10CC legacy. Uh, it's a big it's a big sham, you know, because it was a reunion that really wasn't. And the potential was there to make it great, but it just, you know, all the pieces that were pulled in to try to make it great just weren't there. Yes. Uh, I'm hoping, and I've got, I've got both... Um, both my hands with fingers crossed here we're hoping that there might be an opportunity of hearing the demos for these songs um we're we're, we're working on sources and from a personal point of view i'd love to hear those wouldn't it be great for all of us to to hear and share those um yes that'd be fantastic that could be meanwhile in its you know in its true setting two great songwriters who are getting together and finally enjoying each other's company enjoying working together and uh, and hearing them in their pure form wow that would be brilliant mm. all right Thanks, been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening